Welcome to another episode of Paper Napkin. I'm Kendra Rogers. Over the last few weeks, I've really enjoyed connecting with the most interesting people that I know and asking them to connect me with their most interesting people and so on. If you were listening to episode five, you heard Marielle Ranaday share the story of how she met Mickey Sawada and suggested we'd love connecting. Boy, was she right. Mickey is a classical concert pianist who received training from top conservatories and has performed internationally in places like Carnegie Hall, but who is most known for her signature project, the Gather Here Tour. Basically, she's traveling through 50 states with a piano and playing in community gathering spaces for people who may have never heard live classical music before. Mickey and I spoke about class, race, identity, music as an outlet for creativity, and a space for belonging and togetherness. I left our conversation so energized, so inspired. What she's doing and creating is really unlike anything I've seen before. And I really hope that you get inspired by this as well. But first, I'll let Marielle introduce Nikki. I've thought long and hard about this. And the person that comes to mind for me is one of my very good friends from university. Her name is Miki Sawada. She's a concert pianist, is an amazing pianist. Me and Rajiv used to go to all of her recitals when we were in university. Her parents lived in Japan at the time. And so they weren't able to come to a lot of her recitals. So Rajiv and I are always there in the background cheering her on. And Mickey has played in a lot of really interesting venues. But one of her latest projects is something called Gather Here. She started in Alaska. It was the idea of how can music, and in particular classical music, bring community together. So she toured playing concerts in different venues. And she toured in a lot of very rural places, places where if you were a bit close-minded about things, you wouldn't think that classical music would be something that you'd see much there. But her idea was that music could bring community and bring connection together. So she did a tour in Alaska, another tour in West Virginia, again, very rural places of the U.S. And she's embarking on her third tour in Massachusetts. And I just love the idea about community and connection and classical music being the pillar of that. She's met a lot of really interesting people along the way. She's made these mini documentaries. And I think her hope is to do all 50 states at some point. And I thought she might be a really good person. Mickey, thank you so much for being here on Paper Napkin. Thanks for having me. And, you know, Marielle speaks so, so, so highly of you. And I really enjoyed my conversation with her. So I'm really looking forward to digging in a little bit more into who you are and what you do. She touched on it, but I'd love to hear it straight from you. What do you do? Why do you do it? Well, I'm a pianist, so I play the piano and specifically I play classical music. Why do I play the piano? (laughs) That's a big, big question. I think music It doesn't have to be classical music, but music is such a special thing to humans. I mean, it's just sound waves, right? It's nothing more than that. But the way that it moves people, the way that it can bring people together, the way that it's somehow ingrained in our bodies to respond to those sound waves, I think that's incredible. And that's something that I'm really interested in pursuing and just kind of exploring throughout my life. I think that's why I play the piano. It was definitely never about the glamour or standing on Carnegie Hall or those kinds of things. But that kind of curiosity about music really drives me. 
And how does that relate to the work that you're doing with Gather here? Classical music has a lot of baggage. It's often portrayed as having a dying audience. Everyone's really old. If you ever go to a classical concert and look around, it's just a sea of silver hairs and people are wondering what's going to happen to classical music in the future. And in the last year, especially in the United States, there's a lot of reckoning with racial justice and the fact that classical music is a very white male-centric field and it's about elitism in a lot of ways. I think very purely classical music is so beautiful as an art form and it's is so deep and there are very few other things like it, but that is a problem. And I didn't really feel comfortable being a classical musician, to be perfectly honest, especially as I reached grad school age and started thinking a lot more broadly about the world and my place in the world. So I've always wondered, what is the point of classical music? There must be a better way to use this really special, beautiful thing in the world so that more people are listening and more people are touched by it. I mean, it shouldn't just live in this tiny bubble of rich white people. So I've always grappled with that. And then when Trump was elected in 2016, that was a huge shock for me. I'm not from this country. And first of all, I thought, do I really want to stay in the United States? And the answer was pretty clearly yes. But then it was also a question of what am I doing as a classical musician in the United States in 2016? And so Right away, pretty much, I came up with the idea that maybe a piano doesn't have to live in a concert hall. Maybe it's possible to put it in a little van <laughs> and truck around the country and play in places where people are already gathering and p places that people already love to hang out in, bringing classical music to the people, really. And by doing that, maybe I can see the country in a way that a lot of other people don't have the privilege of seeing and making connections with people who I would have never connected with otherwise. That's how Gather Here was born and that's what I'm doing today too. Wow, such an interesting journey and there's a lot of threads I want to pull on this but one in particular that I'm curious about is you mentioned that classical music has baggage but you mm -hmm. found classical music. How did mm. you first connect with it? What was your inroad into ah. it? <laughs> well, my mother had me starting on piano quite young. I'm Japanese and she's not a tiger mom, but <laughs> she did have, you know, these aspirations of what she wanted me to be exposed to as a child. And I'm very grateful for that. But I hated playing the piano <laughs> and I hated practicing and I was just avoided at all costs. But what I do remember is sometimes because I didn't want to practice what I should be practicing, I would just sit down at the piano and spend that time instead of just playing all the music I knew from memory and just kind of like mock performing for my mom and my birds. I don't know. <laughs> and I remember that she used to really love it and it, it just made her so happy. And I thought it was amazing that through music, I could just make someone stay and make them happier. So that's definitely what brought me in and helped me stay with it. That's really quite beautiful because it's not the act of playing the piano. It's the act, I guess, of the connection that the music brings and the way mm -hmm. that you're able to use it to open doors or bring connection with other people, whether that yeah. be other or the people that you're interacting with on the tour. What did mm -hmm, for sure look like? I'm so curious. You've been you've been on two so far. I did two, Alaska and West Virginia. Yeah, right. And yeah. what did that look like? Maybe the best thing to picture one of like the most iconic concerts of tours so far is in Alaska in this town called Talkeetna. 
which is a little bit south of Denali National Park, but they fly all these tourist planes to Denali. So it's like a little hub for tourists. But there are locals that live there, and there are probably maybe a few hundred locals that live there. And there's a little dive bar in the middle of town, and it's just really creaky and smells like beer, and <laughs> it's been there forever. And I, I played in there, and... I set up on the stage where they usually do open karaoke, open mic night, and people pulled up chairs right up to the stage and there were kids running around in front of the stage. There were people standing around to the side and really listening with their beers in hand. And there were people at the bar who weren't really there for the music, but it was just such a nice atmosphere. Just this close circle of people, very intimate. It's always very intimate. And... It sounds so interesting. And I think there's maybe these preconceived notions that you have when you hear that you're doing a classical piano concert Mm -hmm. where open mic exists in Alaska or West Virginia. And I imagine that's part of why you created what you've created. What were your thoughts on what it was going to be like? And has it matched when it came? (laughs) Yeah, I was terrified. I had no idea how people would react. I didn't know if people wanted to listen to classical music. I didn't know if they would actually sit down and listen and stay because classical music requires a kind of intense listening on the listener's part. It's not something that you, I mean, you could be doing dishes to it, but that's a very different experience from just completely paying attention to it and taking everything in and following the narrative of the music and the drama. So I didn't know if people would be open to doing that. I didn't know if as an outsider from Alaska, if I would not be welcomed. I had all these doubts and fears and I thought maybe people would throw eggs at me or something. But but no, everyone was so grateful. Everyone listened so intensely. It was just kind of beautiful, the kind of silence that you got in all these spaces that like places like cafes where usually it's bustling and there's a lot of noise, but it just turns dead silent as everyone focuses and we're kind of communing with one another Basically, it just gave me so much hope and confidence in in what I do and in classical music. So it far exceeded my expectations. I can imagine the energy in the room as well and the juxtaposition from the way that you're describing it. You, you mentioned that you felt like an outsider and you mentioned that you were sort of terrified at first. I think those are probably relatable feelings and they might not be relatable to you getting up on stage and and playing classical music but I think that people often feel scared to put themselves out there and you've put yourself out there in a really big way is there anything that you Mm -hmm. have learned from that that you can pass on it's that people really appreciate it and they respond to it half of the mission of the tour is to document the things that I see and the connections I make with people and the kinds of people I meet and I've been welcomed into people's homes and been fed and given lots of hugs and we stay friends for till now. And people have opened up to me in ways that have been really such a privilege for me. I think that's because I'm making myself vulnerable by putting myself out there, going to them and offering them music instead of going there to take something from them. So it's a different relationship from, say, a reporter going in and trying to get these stories, especially in West Virginia, which is a state with a lot of problems and it has a very difficult history 
with coal mining and poverty and drugs. It's just a state that's been taken advantage of so much. It's called an extraction state because people came in and took all their resources and didn't give them their fair share of money. And so going there and not going there to extract something, but to give something back, I think that was really meaningful for me and for for the people that I met. The idea of offering instead of taking is such an interesting one because it feels like a piece of the puzzle that comes up again and again when it comes to connection. Mm. I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about the type of energy that you would bring to that sort of offering. Mm -hmm. If you picture a standard classical recital, you would all be in the audience and I would be on a very high stage and I would walk in and you would be clapping and I would bow and do my thing. I guess that's one type of offering too, but my kind of offering is just a, a lot more communal. I never do a formal walk on stage. I'm just mingling with the people beforehand. And then I just, when it's time, I go on stage and I start playing. And yeah, it's just more of a conversation. It's less of me presenting something. It's more communal. It's more sharing. There are often parts in, in my concerts where people are encouraged to take part either by talking back to me or sometimes I build in little prompts so that the audience is actually participating in music making. It's a lot more about us as equals, less about me versus them. And that's the kind of offering I do. Absolutely magical experience that <laughs> sounds like. I just I love what you're doing. I'm curious around the idea of how you connect because you've touched on being vulnerable. You've touched on offering instead of taking. Do those characteristics translate into other areas of your life as well? What does connection look like in your world? Mm -hmm. I think there are so many different levels of connection. Like, of course, I have my connection with my husband and my dog. And <laughs> that's a very different connection than I than I have with the ones I have with my audiences, which are very fleeting. But I think I find it really fun in life to to find those connections that are fleeting and are kind of really random and you couldn't have predicted it would have ever happened, but it's just, you know, the time and place just magically aligns so that you do connect. And I think those are just as meaningful as any other connection that have more longevity. That's what I'm trying to do with my music is really capitalizing on those really random connections, but making that a moment that people can remember and maybe it even changes them in some way. And, you know, I couldn't have done that without music as the catalyst. And going back to music being such a fundamentally wondrous and human thing, it's just so, so fun for me to see what, what kinds of relationships that leads to. I'm thinking of, I was just watching on Netflix, mm -hmm. Pretend It's a City with Fran. Oh like, yeah. About musicians. Yeah. That's such a good show. <laughs> she, she talks about how music of all of the arts feels mm -hmm. the best maybe for connection because mm -hmm. people can connect to a memory or to an experience and it can really bring about something emotional within them. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. First of all, I liked that she said, <laughs> I think she said that musicians are the most liked of all the artists. <laughs> That's fun. Yes. So music is very special in that it requires us to be sharing the same space and time. I mean, of course, you can talk about recordings. For me, music 
has to be live, like by definition. And it's this communal experience of, again, sharing time and space. And that's becoming increasingly rare these days, especially now, right, during the pandemic. But even in normal times, as everything's turning digital and people are growing more secular, I don't think music is that different from religion in that it's, it's an occasion for a ritual of sorts. You're coming together around a common goal or a belief. You're sharing time and space and you grow relationships from this act of gathering. And so as people grow more secular and digital, we have less and less occasion for these gatherings. And I think that's a really big part of being human that we, we can't really live without. And as it does grow more secular, more maybe music will become even more important in our lives. That was actually my next question for you is around how you think we can foster connection and what is becoming an increasingly virtual space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more art, definitely more art of all kinds, visual, theater, poetry, everything. I don't think the arts are going to be taken over by robots ever, though there are very good, very good replicas made by robots, but it's just such a human thing that can't be taken away from us. And it, I think it's going to keep evolving in unpredictable and beautiful ways. I really loved what you said just there about sharing time and space and about mm -hmm. growing relationships. And I don't know if I have a fully formed thought on it, but the thing that's coming to mind is the way that it feels to sit beside someone and watch theater or watch music and be involved in it and how different that feels to watching Netflix. There is something in being in the same room with someone experiencing something, but when it's on the other side of a screen, it does feel like there's something missing to it. Yeah, you're right. Even going to a movie theater with a, many other people is a different experience from watching live theater performing arts, there's a lot of risk involved, right? There's always the chance that something is going to go wrong. And most often, something does go wrong. <laughs> you might not notice as an audience, but that kind of risk taking is something that really grabs people's attention. And that's what makes you, again, vulnerable. Like every time I go on stage, I am the most vulnerable I ever am in my life more than any other time during my normal daily life. That's when I'm most vulnerable. And you have to you can't give a good performance that people respond to otherwise. And that's another thing. When I went to Alaska, I wasn't sure with people who have never heard classical music before, would there be enough of a point of entry for them? Because some of the music is incredibly complex and it helps to have a little bit of background information or training. But people know if it's a good performance. They just know it doesn't matter what their artistic background is. They can tell a good performer from a bad and... Again, that's so beautiful and that's so human and pretty incredible. Pretty incredible, the universality, I guess. Mm -hmm. of music. And I and maybe especially classical music because there aren't words, because it is really just to listen to the sound of the instrument that, that mm -hmm. sort of transcends nationality, maybe transcends language. Yeah, I mean, music started when cavemen were drumming things around their fires and that was the ritual from the very beginning it's like they used sound and music even if it's super primitive to to make us feel 
something collectively, right? And strengthening bonds in that way and creating community in that way, basically so that they could thrive as their own little tribe and they would have better connections when they really needed to band together and just survive. And so music has that kind of background. And sometimes it feels like classical music has strayed very far from that. But that is the goal of music, I think, is to... It's a ritual for codifying behavior and expectations in society and all those things. I'm really curious, touching back right to the very beginning of the conversation around classical music having baggage and it being sort of elitist, it being something that is old white men. And I wonder if you have any thoughts as to how we got here, because as we're talking about it and unpacking it, it feels like something that should never have felt elitist. And I just wondered yeah. if, you, if you thought about that at all. Yeah. First, I should clarify, the audience tends to be old and white. The composers are white and male, very, very dominantly. So you will see old white females in the audience. <laughs> but yes, uh, I think something like 95% of programmed composers are male and white. Well, you know, classical music started in Europe, and it did start as a casual endeavor. It was you know, hobbies. It was like listening to pop music to listen to classical music. And then eventually went through a phase when churches and courts, kings and queens, they would commission musicians to write music for them for services and ceremonies. So in that way, it was already a little bit more elevated. And in the 18th, 19th century, it was a very middle class thing to do, upper middle class thing to do, to learn to play piano, especially for young ladies, to be good candidates for marriage. It was good for them to learn how to play the piano. So if you were of a certain class, nothing, nothing like super elite, but if you're middle class or above, you bought a piano and you got lessons and people got together in their homes to make music casually and socially. And it was a very pervasive activity. I would say in the United States, it's especially problematic. The American classical music scene has always gone through this insecurity of not being as good as Europeans. So there's this kind of complex that's always been there and it's probably still there. And because it's been imported from Europe as this mostly white, middle-class, upper-class endeavor, and then you're bringing it into the United States, which is such a melting pot of people and races, and you know, you're trying to impose this thing. Probably most people see European culture as already kind of bougie. So you're importing this and you're imposing it on the population. And where is the entry point? Like, what is the appeal for the masses, for people who don't look like that? or who have not been raised with this culture, there's quite a clash there, right? And for me, I think that the music should reflect the people in some way, even if it's a very lofty, if it's a very broad way of reflecting them, I think it should reflect them in some way. So that's why now, you know, people are saying, well, why are there no Black composers being programmed most of the time, even though there were Black composers that had their careers in the States. And why do we see so few people of color? Well, there are a lot of Asians in the field, but why do we see so few Black and Hispanic kids going to music school? Well, it's because it's prohibitively expensive to pursue a career in classical music most of the time. And there's just a lot of excluding big groups of people 
big populations of the United States, whether intentionally or not. And I think last year was a really big breaking point in a way for a lot of classical musicians and organizations. There's been a really big wave of musicians and organizations trying to incorporate a lot more music by diverse composers. And I think that's so important. And that's the kind of movement I'm also trying to keep pushing forward. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. It strikes me that you are a Japanese woman. You've just spoken about how it's 95% white male composers. And you spoke earlier about the fact that you felt like an outsider going into Alaska, going into West Virginia. Do you think that being a quote unquote outsider within the context of classical music made it easier to enter into spaces where you might feel like an outsider, such as these states in the United States? Mm, That's interesting. Well, I'm definitely not an outsider in the classical music field. In classical music, there are tons and tons of Asian musicians, especially straight from Asia. And there are a lot of women performers. So in that way, I'm not at all a minority within the field. But you're right. I do often wonder how I look when I go to these places. You know, how much do people think about the fact, especially in places like Alaska and West Virginia, where it's so white, what do they think when they see me? That's an interesting question. But I've been welcomed so, so much. Luckily, I haven't had many or any incidents of racism while on tour. I mean, of course, like in my daily life, there are things I encounter, but that's something that still has to be explored in the tour. I don't have enough data points, so to speak. But yes, I think it, it is unique that I'm doing this as a non-American out of pure love for this country. It comes back to the vulnerability piece, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think there are so many different levels of bravery, but even the the bravery that comes with just doing this and you're not in a band, right? Like you don't have a bunch of people up there with you is my understanding. So no, it's just me. What a That is so courageous, I think, from where I sit to even walk into a room of people that you don't know it feels courageous sometimes, but to do so and then to to lay out your music and your art in a city you've maybe never been to with not a single familiar face. Wow. Do you feel brave? Because you seem brave. <laughs> it's so scary. It is really scary and it's nerve wracking every single time. Like I'm already nervous now thinking about my first concert for next tour. And even in the middle of tour, every time I go somewhere new, every time I'm about to go on stage, it's very, very scary. And yeah, one of the scariest things I'll do in my life. But I mean, there's no other way to do it. And once I start playing, like once I start playing the first notes, I mean, sure, I might be nervous still for other reasons, but I just feel so lucky to be doing what I'm doing. And every single concert that I play on Gather Here Tour, it just feels once in a lifetime and so special. You said it feels scary beforehand and you described the way it feels during. What? How do you feel after? It is like a celebration afterwards because I've made friends with basically a room full of people. There is usually a gathering that follows, though not, not this time around because of pandemic, but there are, it's, yeah, it's always like a big party afterwards. And it is like I've made friends for life with that entire room. And sure, like some people I might not, talk to afterwards they may have just gone home but I still 
have made that connection. And that's something that can't be taken away ever. Like the fact that in that moment we connected. And I think that's so important. Like before I went on my first tour, before I got on the plane, like I was kind of thinking maybe if I don't show up, that's fine. Like it, the world's going to keep going. Some people might be mad at me, but that it's not going to be such a big deal if I didn't show up. But I thought when I'm dying, when I'm on my deathbed, I can say that I, as a 20-something-year-old, I went to Alaska, I trucked around with a piano, and I played all these concerts. And that's something that no one will ever be able to take away from me. And that was important to me, and that's still important to me, that to find those experiences and to go outside of your comfort zone to pursue those things, because I think that's what that's really what makes life. I got a little misty-eyed when you said that. I think the idea of I showed up and the idea of I didn't have to show up is such an impactful message, actually, because you don't have to show up and no one does. But the value to yourself and the value to others that comes with that bravery and that vulnerability is to your point, so valuable. And I feel like also people don't, they wouldn't have known what they would miss, but the impact that you've made from being there with them is probably even bigger than you, than you even know. Oh yeah, totally. Even bigger than I imagined. And I think that's, that's kind of the role of artists is to dream up these things that we may not have thought was possible and to do it. And yeah, I think that's what a true artist does. In addition to hopefully being a good piano player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you've got that one. <laughs> what do you think connection will look like in five years' time? Five years. I'm sure it'll be more digital. I don't think the, the platforms that people have built and the connections that people have built over the last year online, I don't think those are going to go away. And I'm sure more people will find ways to capitalize and there'll be new platforms. I think live performances will still be going strong. I think those things can coexist. They both fill our needs in different ways and we can't live without either of those at this point. I think the more people go digital, I think the more people will crave real live connections too. And your tour coming up here is in Massachusetts. Yes. Where, where next? In five years time, what other states will you have crossed off your list? Well, I'm going to Utah in the fall. And it looks like I'll be going to Mississippi in the spring next year, 2022. And I spent so little time in the South. And that's like a foreign, different, foreign country to me. So that'll be a very exciting new chapter for Gather Here. Yeah, five years. Hopefully, let's say 10 more states at least. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> I, one of the episodes that I previously recorded was with Jim Button. And I just randomly thought of this, but his, his blog is called Gather with Jim. Your I, I, I did hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your initiative is gather here. And this word gather actually keeps coming up. And I can't say it's a word that was ever really heavily in my vocabulary. Hmm. What drew you to naming your initiative that? It started with just the idea of the piano. I noticed that when there's a piano in a space, no matter what the space is, people naturally gravitate towards it. And they want, they want to feel what the keys feel like. And they want to hear what it sounds like there's some kind of magical pull about that object it's just an object I thought that was really special that it, it has that p 
power to pull people in, to gather people around it, and maybe, you know, people want to sing together around the piano. And I thought that's a really beautiful image of the piano as a central object of a gathering place. So that's how it started. Yeah, the piano is a gathering place. And you as that central place as well, right? The piano. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Object, but you are bringing the life to it. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I, I struggle with is I often forget to talk about myself when I do the project. Yes, I am involved in the music making. <laughs> yes, gathering people around, my playing around classical music. Do you think you're an introvert or an extrovert? I am definitely an introvert. What is it called? Social introvert, right? Yes. Though I don't even like to socialize that much, but <laughs> definitely introverted. That makes you even more brave. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is very tiring, <laughs> very tiring to be on tour and be with people all the time. But you do it. I do it. I think it's so interesting because everyone's talking about introvert, extrovert and who you are and whatever. And I, it was never a question that I thought I would have on this podcast, but I find it really interesting because I always get it wrong. Like <laughs> we're going to say extrovert for sure. Really? <laughs> <laughs> because to go into a room full of people and be able to perform and then leave and feel energized by it sounds like extroversion but that's true but but the the act of listening to music is a very introverted experience in a way I guess you could say it's both it can be both maybe that's the beauty of it is that I can do that as an introvert and other people can do the same thing as an extrovert and we still connect on this common ground yeah I think that's it as a kid we moved around like every four or five years internationally and I was so bad at making friends I was just so happy just being by myself and stuff but it was one of those things that did put me out there in public and connecting with people and that's been an important part of the, the journey for me that's a really fascinating element of your story actually is that you moved around so much and that I imagine that that would be challenging as a kid but the fact that maybe you used music as a way to connect even at that young age and to build those connections it it does actually feel natural that now you're doing what you're doing. I am most comfortable when I'm on the move for sure and to still be able to make connections it's kind of magical it's like a paradox right yeah it's like your your family your upbringing prepared you for this brilliant life you know in, in such an interesting way of course all paths lead to what you're doing now and yeah this journey was very specific to me but I I hope that other musicians or whoever can listen to my story and think for themselves what is the kind of path that really fits them and suits them and is fun for them. And I guess what is that what does that look like and how can that be outside of what is done? Because I think if you were to say to someone when you were 12 years old if they said what do you want to be and you said a classical pianist who goes to all of the states and tours around and plays in in random venues. They'd be like, that's not a job, right? <laughs> like that doesn't exist, but you made it exist. And there's something really special about that, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's again, I think a natural part of what we do as artists is to, to create something where it doesn't exist. What is one piece of advice that you often pass on to others? It's kind of the same thing as what I was saying before about doing something that on your deathbed, you can say that you've done and it can't ever be taken away from you. I think 
having that kind of courage just leads to so many unimaginable experiences in life. And I think we should not be afraid to grasp those. That's great advice. And you are incredibly courageous. I I always ask this question and you know that it's coming, but in true paper napkin fashion, who should we connect with next and what makes them a great connection? Yes. So this is actually someone I met during tour in Alaska. Her name is Megan Weston. And I met her because I was on Google randomly trying to find places to play. And I often do this. I just search, I just click on random businesses on Google Maps. And I saw a deli in a place called Saldatna, Alaska, and clicked on the deli and I saw that they had a music series. And then I went to their website and I saw that they have a baby grand piano. So I thought, you know, I have to play here. They do like poetry night. They do open mic nights. It seems like a really delicious deli. They have a grand piano. I have to go. So I emailed her out of nowhere, totally cold email. I didn't have anything set up at that point because this was my first tour. And she was so nice and enthusiastic and she was totally on board. She wrote recommendation letters for grant applications, not having met me at all. And we met, and of course, we fell in love. We love each other. <laughs> She's a really great friend of mine still. And so she is the owner of Odie's Deli in Soldatna. And she's also a very big small business advocate. She goes to Alaska-wide state conferences with state legislature and that kind of thing. So she has a few small businesses in town now. And she's a person who is professional at creating community in these spaces for communities to gather. And she's the kind of magnetic person that, you know, people just want to be around her. And I really admire her for that. So I would recommend Megan Weston. Nikki, thank you so much. I can't wait to connect with Megan. And I love that, that right now we are, you know, in Boston and now we'll be moving. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me on the journey with you really. And thank you so much for this conversation. I'd love to share a bit more with the listeners about where they can find you, how they can follow the journey. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So the website is gather here. Here is H E A R as I'm listening, gatherhere.com. And on Instagram, it's gather underscore here underscore tour those would be the best places to find me you can also go on youtube and search gather here tour and you'll see tons of footage from those tours wonderful and that gives everyone a chance to really connect with you but i think especially if if you're going to be in massachusetts next and who knows where else um, some other great some other really great places maybe the uk is on the horizon after you Yes. Gather here, London. Yeah. Could I interest you in Canada? I know some people. Yes, Yes, everywhere. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so Oh, thank you for having me. This is such a wonderful series. I'm excited to hear more. You can follow Mickey on her journeys by searching for Gather Here, H-E-A-R. She's just started the tour and is experiencing that special, magical gather here silence where everyone's listening so intently already. This has been Paper Napkin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and our past episodes too. Your connection to the podcast makes it that much more special. Please like or review 
or share it with someone who you think would enjoy the connection. Until next week, stay safe and be kind.